At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Well, again, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 13. We're in this series called The Follower's Trail Guide. It's a a great little metaphor for us to understand uh, how we might follow Jesus as he leads us and as he directs us and what that that life may look like. But before we get into what it looks like to follow Jesus, I, I think we have to ask a really important question. And that question is, what does the evidence of your life say about who you follow? When you look at your life, you look at your lifestyle, you look at who you are, what is, what is the evidence telling or saying about, about who you follow? I think if we're really honest, it's really obvious, okay? It's not a mystery what the evidence points to and, and, sh- and shows us. I mean, I have no doubt, no doubt at all that Ryan Nast, our student ministry director, that he is a huge fan and follower of the Detroit Pistons. I mean, it is everywhere. If you spend five minutes with Ryan, you're going to hear him talk about it. If you hang out with him for at any point during a week, I mean, he's going to have the jersey and probably a different hat on every day. Like, his room is decorated to be a likeness of the palace at Auburn Hills in uh, all the memorabilia that's there. I think they just moved it from the palace to his place. I mean, this is, Ryan is a follower of the Detroit Pistons. I mean, that's, that's obvious. It's clear that it's there. And, and I have no doubt of who the University of Michigan Wolverine fans are. Uh, you guys, I'm with you there. We wear our stuff. We cheer loud. Like, come on for yesterday. All right, there we go. Okay, I knew there was a fan. Sounds like this crowd is the uh, University of Michigan, uh, Michigan State uh, crowd, and you guys are going kind of incognito uh, today. I'm sorry, not really. Um, but, you know, you know who you are. We know what we wear, right? We know it's evident there. And, and it's not just about sports. I know that that's fun to poke on and joke about a little bit. Any recovering Lions fans? Uh, okay. Uh, here. It, who we follow is evident in all of life. It's there in everything. And more than just sports, it's evident spiritually and deeply in every aspect of our life, ultimately, who we are following. Jesus, is, as, as Nathan taught from John 13 last week, Jesus is in his final hours with his disciples. This farewell discourse, what we're going to be studying um, beginning at uh, chapter 13 of John here through chapter 16, what we'll be dis- uh, teaching and, and unpacking over the next several weeks into November, this is called the farewell discourse by scholars, but it's Jesus' teaching to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. It's, it's, in some ways, it's his last will and testament. He's saying to his disciples, hey, if I get one more time to sit down with you and teach you and prepare you for my departure, here's the most important stuff. Here's the things that you need to help your hearts. And so Jesus does this around the meal, the, the meal of being the last supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. And, and leading into that meal, what was common in those uh, times was that someone would come and wash the feet. A, a lowly servant would come in and wash the feet of the guests at the meal and help prepare them in cleanliness for that meal. But, but in this case, at this last supper, at this festival of the Passover, no one has done that. 
No, no person among Jesus' ranks has humbled themselves enough. No servant has lowered themselves enough to wash the feet. And so Jesus, the master, the ultimate one, he comes and he takes off his outer garment and he goes disciple by disciple in humility, washing their feet. And he commands them and he says, I've given you an example that you should follow. Just as I have served you, so you are to serve and to love one another. A commandment to follow him in humility and service. And here's the question. Will we follow him in that? As we move through this text, we we begin to see that Jesus, he he deals with something. He, He said to them earlier, just a little bit, that one of them in their midst, he said, the scripture will be fulfilled in verse 18, that he who ate my bread who's been at my table, as it were, has lifted his heel against me. So he's already hinted that there's going to be someone in their midst who will betray him. But we get to verse 21. After Jesus has said these wonderful things, I give you an example, and and yet there's one who will lift his heel against me, we find that John captures that. And he begins to ask, well, what what is going on here? If we're going to think about who we're really following, we have to use the words of Scripture as a mirror for us to see and to realize what our lives are like. What I want to do this morning is I want us, as we, as we begin to see Jesus' teaching here, I want us to look at the characters here. There's three prominent characters in this passage that, that was read for us this morning. And I want us to see their lives as a, as a mirror for us to examine who we are following. Because each one of these people is following someone or something different. And in that way, it's a way for us to discern, are we truly following Jesus? You might not be following who you think you are. So I want us to look at these three types, to see these three people, and ask ourselves, are we following? Who are we following? Who is that revealed as? So let's start with this. The first type that's there is the self-interested. The person who is self-interested, they follow Satan. I know I'm coming heavy right out of the gate with this one, but the self-interested person follows Satan. And here's how it's described. So after Jesus has said these things, John says, he was troubled in his spirit. Now just a little side note here. Lest you think that Jesus is some stoic, some, some emotionless being that just kind of robotically moved his way through three and a half years of ministry and then suffered and died and is raised again and ascended to heaven. Lest you think that Jesus has no emotions, catch this here. In in the closest reality of of his 12 disciples, of his nearest friends, he knows that one among them will betray him. And he's even told them that. And it bothers him. It discourages him. Jesus was troubled in spirit is a a valid statement of his emotional life. that, That he was grieved that one of his close friends would bail on him and turn him over. It's okay to express those emotions of of sorrow and grief and sadness. When we are hurt and wounded in this world, Jesus certainly did. And and so it's it's come apparent among the disciples and among that room, Jesus, he's upset about something. He's troubled by by something he said, something that's happening in this. And so Jesus speaks up and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And you talk about killing the mood in a room. Like, that's just it. Like, get, get your family together, maybe at Thanksgiving, and just everybody's having the meal, and just look around and say, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And the, the temperature in the room is just going to go off real quick. Maybe that happens every year for you. I don't know. But, like, here it is. Jesus says this, and now everybody's in turmoil. Well, who's he talking about? 
They all think of themselves as loyal to Jesus. They all perceive themselves as followers of his. They all think, hey, we're in the game with him. Who is he speaking about? They begin, John says, to look at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. I mean, you can imagine just the paranoia going up in that room. Some of the other gospel writers say they begin to question themselves, like, is it you? Is it me? Like, Jesus, who is it? Like, there's just this chatter rose up in the room. Now, John gives us a focused view of this. He says one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, he's speaking about himself there, not in a sense of flattery, but just kind of anonymously saying, like, Jesus loved me, like, we're close, and, and, and I'm sitting there right at Jesus' right hand. I'm reclining, he's reclining at table at Jesus' side, so right at his right hand. He's there, and Simon Peter sees John, and so he makes this gesture, this motion. I don't know what it was, but it's kind of like this nod, like, hey, ask him. Who is it? Like, lean in. Table sittings at this time in the ancient Near East were, were very different than our tables together. They're not the high tables with the chairs, but they were a lower table where everyone would kind of recline on their knees and kind of sit back, and, and you were in a lot closer proximity to one another. So, so all John has to do is kind of lean back towards Jesus. Just lean up to him and, and, and lean up to him and say, hey, okay, who is it, Jesus? He asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers to John, he says to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, now put yourself in, those, in that room. Put yourself in Judas' seat for just a moment. It seems by the context here that Judas is probably sitting on Jesus' left-hand side. So John leans over, says to Jesus, who is it? Jesus says to John, it's the one I'm going to give this morsel when I dip it. He's going to take it. Judas could probably overhear that, so he knows what's coming. Jesus leans, dips the morsel into one of the, the oils or the sauce there of the, the Passover meal, and he hands it to Judas. He leans over and it's like, here, take it. Now, if you know that you're the betrayer, and you know that Jesus has said, one of you will betray me. And you, and you hear him say it. And then you hear him say, the guy who I have give this to, he's the one. And Jesus turns and he hands it to you. What do you do? What do you do? Well, this is a moment for Judas's heart to be exposed. He's immediately confronted with the reality that Jesus knows what's going on. And Jesus knows who he is. Effectively saying he is caught red-handed. He's the guy. He knows it. Jesus knows it. The whole room is about to figure it out. Well, let's think for just a moment here. Let me pause the story and where we're at in John 13. And let's think about Judas and his character. Because here's a moment for Judas to repent. Here's a moment for Judas to say, no, Lord, I, I don't desire that. I don't want that. No, Lord, I, I don't want to betray you. And yet, how does he react? What is in his heart? Let me just give you some realities or some little character sketch of who Judas was. All four of the gospel writers include Judas in their list of the 12 apostles. All of them indicate that he was one of the 12 that Jesus called. He was with the official company of Jesus, one of his close learners. He saw, I mean, if you just experience life through the eyes of Judas, he saw the life of Jesus in its totality. He was with Jesus when Jesus did, performed his miracles, feeding 5,000, calming the storm, raising Lazarus from the dead. Judas was there. He was with them. 
And, and as a disciple, he heard Jesus' teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He heard Jesus say, for thus it is given the kingdom of God. He's heard the gospel message from Jesus itself, himself. Furthermore, Judas was commissioned. He was sent as one of the apostles to go and pro proclaim good news in the cities and towns of Judea. He was an emissary, so he had been with Jesus in his ministry. Judas had been close. And in John 13, 39, here just a little bit later in this passage, I'm sorry, verse 29, Judas is identified as having a particular role in the company of the disciples. He is the one who had the money bag. That is to say, he was the treasurer or the accountant. He was the CPA, if you will. Now note here that just because Judas is the accountant doesn't mean all accountants are Judases. Um, but be careful <laughs> there. He's the treasurer of the organization. And yet having the money bag wasn't a good thing for Judas. If you go back just one chapter to chapter 12 of John, you see this amazing story where Jesus is with very close friends in Bethany. And, and one of the women who was there, Mary was her name, took what the scripture says, a pound of expensive ointment. Judas complained later that it could have, it was worth a year's worth of salary. Mary took this expensive perfume and she anointed the feet of Jesus, did this beautiful act of worship to him. Yet Judas, the scripture says, was angry about it. And he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John indicates he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was an embezzler. The money bag was not a good thing for him. So, so two things come as a result of that incident. Judas being the treasurer and yet, and yet being a thief from that, an embezzler, he, he was really frustrated. What, what's experienced here and shown here is that he loved and cared about money. And so as he saw Jesus interact with money, something else welled up in his heart. First of all, when Jesus showed no regard for money, Particularly, it frustrated Jesus, particularly this event, when he saw that Jesus cared nothing for the value of the ointment except that it was a lavish act of worship to him, not that it would be sold for the poor. Judas was angry that this, this ointment would be go, uh, spent to waste, not given to the poor. He, he tried to veil his anger in piety. Why was this ointment not sold and money given to the poor? But Judas had no concern about that. He didn't really care to give to the poor. Jesus was taking a cut of what he thought was his. He cut into his bottom line. Furthermore, when Judas realized that Jesus was not going to bring the kingdom of God in power and glory and wealth, he wasn't going to be the political Messiah that they had longed for or hoped that was going to overthrow Rome and set up his own kingdom and bring in his own glory, Judas had to make an investment decision. He began to calculate the cost. I've spent my life with this guy for the last three and a half years. I've been close to him. I thought it was going to result in my, my wealth, my provision. I was investing in him, so I would get a huge return on interest. And where's that going? As Judas weighs that out, he realizes Jesus isn't going up. He's descending. Like There is not going to be a financial windfall coming from a life with Jesus. And so Judas made an investment decision. So I've got, to, I've got to come up with something. So he went to the chief priest and he said, listen, I'll betray Jesus to you if you'll pay me off. 
And they said, okay, 30 pieces of silver, which was the, the minimum price of the Old Testament speaks about paying for a slave. That's what they give Judas for Jesus. He's like, if all I can get out of this is 30 pieces of silver, fine, so be it. I'll betray him. All this shows what's at the heart of Judas himself. It's himself. Judas was concerned about his well-being, his financial security, his improvement, his retirement plan, his comfort, his future, him. Judas is the ultimate caricature of self-interest. And it reveals, that's his life, that's his trajectory, it reveals who he's following. The evidence of his self-interest shows Judas is following Satan. Now you might think, wow, that's really bold to say. That's really aggressive. I mean, to say a guy who cares about providing for himself and making sure he's financially secure and he's comfortable and nothing's going to rock that boat, you're telling me that guy is following Satan? Yeah, but that's because the Bible is saying that. Consider here what Scripture says about Judas. First of all, John 13, what we saw last week, says that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him, Satan had just nudged Judas along. Hey, you're not going to make any money off Jesus, so get what you can. He, he just he put the suggestion in there. He pushed him along. Judas, as he went with that, he's following the devil. And furthermore, now let's come back to the story here. Jesus is holding the morsel out to Judas. It's not an act of judgment. It's an act of mercy and grace, saying, Judas, repent. Pull out of this. You, you can come to me now. What does Judas do? Verse 27. He took the morsel. Judas took it, and then Satan entered into him. When Judas refuses to humble himself and repent before Jesus, he just committed himself to Satan fully. Jesus sees it, and he says, what you do, do quickly. He sends him out. And Judas departed, verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Darkness covers him. Judas is the picture of self-interest. When we live for ourselves, and we make our lives about securing for ourselves comfort and security and wealth, what is revealed from those actions is that we're following the devil. We're following Satan. The sad thing is Judas uses Jesus to do that. You can use the church. You can claim to be a follower of Christ. You can appear religious. You can still have your own self-interest at heart. The devil doesn't mind if you're religious. He doesn't, he doesn't mind if you show up at church. He doesn't mind if you sing and worship and, and do these things. As long as you're self-interested. As long as you're serving your own well-being and your own status. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The devil is like a good chess player. He's always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can only save your castle by losing your bishop. That is to say, you can only save yourself by losing your savior. What are some evidences of this kind of self-interest? A love of money? A commitment to that, to personal security and well-being over the care and love of others outside of your inner circle? A commitment to yourself? A spiritual consumerism where you think of the church as just a place for religious goods and services and where they're not meeting your needs or where they're not fitting into your thinking about what it should be, you'll go find one that will because you care about yourself and what you need. A lack of love for others, 
sure sign of it, of self-interest, is anger. Anger when you do lose out. When there is a loss to yourself and to your comforts and to your privilege and to your place. Now, friends, I just show you this mirror to warn us. I hold, Judas is written here in the scriptures for us to see him and to consider our own lives and say, am I, am I walking like he is? He just cared about money and he wasn't going to get any with Jesus anymore. So he went after it with his whole heart and he ended up in the devil's snare. Is that you? The self-interested follow Satan. Is that you this morning? Who are you following? Let me take you to another person here in the story. Let's go down to verse 36. A second character that reveals a heart and a life following something else. That's the self-confident person. The self-confident person follows the flesh. Now, when we move from Judas and we think, wow, okay, I don't want to be him. Like, nobody names their kids Judas anymore. Like, he's the bad guy. But then we come to another guy in the disciples, one that we think very highly of, Peter. I mean, he's the leader of the apostles, the first among equals among them. He's the one who confessed early on Jesus is the Christ. And, and he has something to say here on this whole mix as well. Now, Jesus in verse 33 has said, where he says to the disciples, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I'll say, say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Peter fixates on that statement. Where, where Jesus is going, I cannot come? Well, why not? Jesus hasn't made this vague they know what he's talking about. Jesus has clearly told them time and time again that he would be betrayed, he would be handed over to the chief priest and mocked and beaten and suffer, and then he would die. And on the third day, he would rise again. And so now Jesus says to them, I am, I'm about to depart, and where I am going, you cannot come. I am headed to my death, and you cannot be there with me. You cannot come there with me. And Peter's like, really? Where are you going? That's what the question he asked in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? And again, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me. That is to say, you cannot take this road with me at this moment, but you will follow afterward. That moment is coming, but right now, Peter, it's not for you. It's only for me. Peter's answer to him is full of himself. It's full of pride. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Here Peter is just saying, what? What? Really? No. I, I, can, I can do this too. If you can do it, Jesus, I can do it. If, you can, if you're going to go suffer, I can suffer too. Thank you very much. I can take care of myself. I can save myself. Like I'll just walk with you in this because I'm good enough to do it. Peter thinks so highly of himself and his ability to do what Jesus alone can do, that he puts himself in Jesus' position. In fact, he elevates himself. He says, Lord, no, no, no. Don't you dare think for a moment you're going to suffer. I'll lay down my life for you. I'm going to be the one to stand in the, in the seat of the Savior. I'm going to be the one to take that position. Now, you know the saying, pride goes before the fall. And here's Peter. He's the guy who will defend Jesus with his life. He won't shrink back. He's going to strong arm this. He's going to accomplish it. He's going to make sure he is the victor. And he's deceived. He's following his own flesh. Peter has for a moment here what, what some call a cold take. I found this Twitter account this last week called Old Takes Exposed. 
The guy who runs the account, he replays and retweets uh, comments from sports commentators about uh, how off they were. So, so here's one from a basketball co- uh, commenter uh, with ESPN. Um, it says, home run hire by Nebraska to bring home Scott Frost. I've known Scott Frost for a while. I may not know football. He should have stopped there. But I know the real thing when I see it. Scott Frost is the real thing. And if you don't know football, well, let me tell you that Scott Frost just ran the Nebraska football program into the ground. That's a cold take, right? He's so wrong. And I like ragging on Scott Frost all I can, too, as a Michigan fan. Peter here has this massive cold take, right? He just says, I'll follow you. No, Jesus, you don't need to. I'll suffer. I'll be the one to die. And it comes from a heart of self-confident pride. Just as much as he likes to think that Jesus, he can do it for Jesus, He's just full of himself, his swagger. D.A. Carson comments and says, Tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but a certain haughty independence that is the seed of denial itself. There's a swagger, a self-assured pride and confidence that is detached from the humble life of dependence on the Lord. And friends, we live in a culture where this kind of self-confidence is celebrated and defended, and it's affirmed as virtue. Do it yourself. Don't be weak. Don't lean on anybody else. Don't need anything else. But friends, that's not the way of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not self-confidence. It's, it's dependence. It's reliance only on Jesus. Another tweet that I saw this week said it this way, Christianity is the only religion in the world that requires us to depend completely on someone else's work, not our own. Some of us go about our Christian faith like Peter. We're self-confident. I don't need any help. I can do this. I've got it. And we're detached. We're We're ignorant. This kind of life reveals itself in in a lifestyle that detaches itself from community. I don't need spiritual community. It doesn't engage with and come under spiritual authority. I'll just do my thing and they'll find out afterwards. It's detached but proud. And it suffers when trials and hardship really hits. Jesus says, will you lay down your life to me? Verse 38, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter, you're going to fall, and it's going to be bad because you're so proud. Scripture calls on us to be people that are humble and dependent, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit, not the self-confident, which means we need one another. Practical display of this is humility, to live in relationship and community with one another, to live under spiritual authority, Seek wisdom to grow. The self-confident follow themselves. They follow their flesh, and it shows. So here we have two types. We have the self-interested, Judas, and they're following Satan. We have the self-confident, they're following their flesh. There's one more person in this text, the center of the text. This is not by chance. John is a genius in his literary structure. We've got Judas on one end, we've got Peter at the end, and we've got Christ right in the middle there. And he shows us that the God-centered follow him. The God-centered follow Jesus. Let me come back to this middle here. Jesus begins his discourse in this part of the section. He's 
Judas has departed. Jesus' hour is at hand. And so he begins to reveal and unpack what's going on. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. What is about to happen here from this moment on is the Son of Man, Jesus, being exalted and glorified. And here's the thing, friends. God is glorified in him. Jesus' betrayal, his suffering, his death, the crucifixion, that is where God's glory is seen. Jesus is exalted and lifted up. And he says, if God is glorified in him, in the Son, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. All of that to say, Jesus is saying, is that God's glory is get, about to get really prominent, really big, really radiant. Like, it's amazing. And it's going to be seen in the place of suffering and death and the crucifixion. And so he says to them, little children, yet a little while I'm with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. This is my task, Jesus says, and mine alone to be lifted up so that when all men look to me, they will be saved. He's going to the cross. And this is where his glory is expressed and seen. This is where the Father's glory is displayed and seen. And so he begins to lay out the course for them to follow. So he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. If you want to know how Jesus defines the Christian life and what it should look like, it's nowhere more obvious than right here. Love one another. Jesus said this is a new commandment. What makes this new isn't that it's the similar statement of the Old Testament of love your neighbor as yourself. It's a call to love as Christ has loved us. And we ask the question, well, how has Jesus loved us? He headed to the cross and laid down his life for us. He gave all of himself for us. And he says, that's, that's the display, that's the model in which you're to follow. As I've laid down my life and loved you, so you are to love others. Lay down your life for them. Lay down your life for one another. That's the mark. A self-sacrificing, self-denying love for the sake of others. And Jesus says, by this, by this love for one another that reflects my love for you, all people will know you're my disciples. There's the evidence. Do you have love for one another as Jesus has loved us? Then the world will know it and see it, and they'll say, you're my followers, you're my disciples. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist and cultural philosopher of the 20th century, he called this the final apologetic. He said, Jesus gives the world a piece of litmus paper, a reasonable thermometer. There's a mark to which if the world does not see it, it allows them to conclude this person is not a Christian. We're called to love one another. The world will know us as followers of Jesus, not by our t-shirts, not by the way we vote, not by the color of our skin, not by our economic progress, not by our education, not by our vaccination status or anything else that the world would define or say. The world will know us by our love for one another. They will know that we are followers of his by our love. Is that what the world sees in your life? Is that the evidence that shows that you're a follower of Jesus? The world knows who we follow by how we love one another. So those who are focused on God, those who are God-centered and are following Jesus, they're full of love for one another. It just leaks out of their life. They glorify Jesus. They love others, especially the church. Now, here's the problem with these three types. Let me just conclude this. If we're honest today, 
And I'm part of this, so don't hear me preaching at you, but with you. If we're honest, all of us are self-interested. We're hedging our bets to take care of, number one, us, right? Be real with yourself. We're all characterized by by self-interest, control. And we're all characterized as well by self-confidence and pride. We think we've got it in the bag. We'll take care of it. We'll we'll muscle through. And there's nobody here, if we're honest, that's perfectly God-centered. Even the best of us as followers of Jesus, we still struggle at this. We fail at this. The good news is, Jesus is calling us to himself. He's saying, come follow me. You, 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 you can open up and admit, yeah, I fail at following you, but because I'm full of my own interest, I'm full of myself, I'm full of my confidence. And Jesus says, okay, repent. I mean, the, the picture of Judas and the picture of Peter here are men that didn't repent in the moment. They didn't come and confess and say, Lord, help me. What would the story have been if they had? If they had? And so this is written for us to see and to go, Jesus, I need you. And friends, that's what it means to be God-centered. To acknowledge we're weak, we're proud, we're full of ourselves, we're protecting ourselves, and to say we're self-interested and self-confident and not God-centered, but we need Jesus. And so we come to Jesus. We follow him. And as we follow him, he builds a life of glorifying him and builds a life of love in us. Because Jesus is the only God, truly God-centered one. He's the one who came and fulfilled righteousness for us. He is the one who won salvation by his perfect sinless life. He is the one who died on our behalf to forgive us and to free us of our sins. And he is the one who was raised to life again so that anyone who will trust in him will have life forever. So Jesus says, come follow me. Desire me. Lay down your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. So he says, come to me, follow me, lay down your life to yourself, and I'll give you life. And the mark of that life, which will expose itself in the way we live, is love. Love for one another. You may be here today and be defined as a self-interested, self-confident person. You may love this world more than anything. You may love yourself more than anything. Hear Jesus' voice saying to you, come, follow me. Lay down your life and follow me. It's the only way to gain life. Maybe you're here this morning like me who desires to follow Jesus, but I do it pretty weakly at times, weakly and poorly. Let's look to Jesus. Let's come to him. Let's say, yeah, we're, we're struggling and here it is, but you're the one who has life. So out of your love for us, may that love be exposed. The way we live exposes who we follow. So I've held up this mirror to you this morning and I want you to ask yourself, who are you following? Is it Satan? Is it your flesh? Or are you following Jesus? He invites you, calls you, come follow me. Let's do so. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.